We are a crack team this morning, everybody. We are a crack team. All right, if you have the scriptures in front of you, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. If not, would you uh, follow along with us on the screen? So today, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from, law, from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. For in order that righteous, for the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live according with God's spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if, you do, if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we might also share in his glory. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. 
And we know that in all things, God works for, good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, gloriously give us all things? Who will bring, uh, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If it is God who justifies, who, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written? For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the, to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We did it again. Congratulations. Now, today is a big day. I don't know if you know this. Ashley has said it. Uh, today is a major Christian holiday. Did you know this? Did you know this? It's Reformation Day. Do you know? October 30. Nobody's tracking at all. Today is October 31st. This is Reformation Day. This, on this day, October 31st, Martin Luther took to All Saints Church in, in Wittenberg, that's the German pronunciation, Germany, where he was a professor, and he hammered his 95 theses to the door for everyone to see. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've never heard anybody cheer for 95 theses before. Heard people not want to go to class and study. Uh, these 95 theses were aimed directly at the abuses of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and began a process of setting into motion what became known as the Reformation, and what we have come to know today as Protestantism, as a stream of Christianity, which is the stream of Christianity that we happen to be a part of. So without Martin Luther and everything that involved the Reformation, we might not be here in this form. Now, if you did not already know, Luther, probably more than any other theologian in the history of the church, or at least the modern history of the church, emphasized the importance of grace, something we talked about in depth last week. Luther was a monk before he, uh, before he realized the importance of grace in the life of a Christian. Uh, and, but as a monk, Luther was deeply troubled by his own sin. He was plagued by it. He was tortured by the notion of his own sin. He would do, and because he was tortured by the notion of his own sin, even as a monk, he would do all manner of strange things. He would go to his head monk and confess his sins multiple times a day, sometimes up to five or six times a day. And there's an account of his confessing monk, his head monk saying, Martin, like, you don't need to do this, right? And yet he would come time and time again. Martin Luther wore a hair shirt 
Is anybody familiar with what a hair shirt is? It's a, it's a very scratchy shirt that monks used to put under their clothing in order to be more uncomfortable than they already were. That was the point. And uh, Martin Luther would self-flagellate. Anybody heard of self-flagellation? This is crazy. This was a practice where a monk or a devout Christian in the Middle Ages would literally have a little tiny whip. They wouldn't hurt themselves that bad, but they would have a little tiny whip and they would slap their backs with it in order to kind of suffer like Jesus suffered. They, they took literally Paul's words where he says, I beat my body and I make it my slave. And, and they believed that in this, at this physical act of kind of like self-flagellation, of hitting yourself with a little whip, you would mortify the flesh. You would mortify the flesh in the language of Scripture. They did all of this because they believed that through this process of inflicting difficulty or pain on themselves, they could somehow rid their bodies of sin. And they could more identify more closely with Jesus through his suffering. In a lot of ways, Luther reminds us of certain holiness traditions, even in our day, that believed that you're just kind of one sin away from backsliding, right? And being subject to God's judgment. And so this insecure attachment with God leads to this fear of my own sin, right? It and it leads me to do all kinds of crazy things in order to absolve myself of my own sin. If, in some sense, I am the person who needs to do these things. Luther's a perfect example of this. But Luther had a powerful encounter with God while reading the book of Romans. Here's, in his own words, this encounter. He says, then finally God had mercy on me. And I'm like, yes, finally God had mercy on you. You were living a very difficult life. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which, by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. Now, from this point on, Luther is captured by this notion of grace, and he lives his life free of all of the, I don't know, the, the self-beating up that he was doing before this point. And he began to teach on the importance of living life, not as, as a means to earn God's grace, but rather out of the outflow of, of receiving God's free gift of grace. This is Luther. Luther's primary contribution, I think, to the church. And he practiced what he preached. Quickly after he hammered his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, he went and got a wife. He said, I don't need to do this. I'm going to go get married. Uh, he, he, and he began to live his life in a very kind of uh, godly but free and open way. He practiced what he preached. Now, Luther was not a perfect person. Uh, but he was this important figure in the reformation or the reformation of the church and a reawakening of this idea of grace in the Western church, which is why we celebrate Reformation Day. So here's the deal. If you're not into Halloween, all right, which is okay, if you're not into Halloween, here's what I suggest you do. You celebrate Reformation Day instead, and you can even dress up like a 15th century monk and no one will be the wiser, right? <laughs> It'll be perfect. It'll be perfect. And if they ask you, you just say, I'm Martin Luther. 
Only, the only problem is shaving a circle in your head every year is like a pretty big ask, right? It's a pretty big commitment to a Halloween, to a Reformation Day costume, right? But here's where uh, Luther meets us today as we study the book of Romans. He loved the book of Romans, as you probably heard earlier. Here's what he said. Here's what Martin Luther said about the book of Romans. He says, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, which he had it memorized word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. High praise, right, from Martin Luther for the book of Romans. Now, in our teaching text for today, in chapter 8, this is considered to be the high point of the book of Romans. But it's also a chapter that I think many of us are quite familiar with, particularly because there are so many quotes in chapter 8 of Romans that are very, very familiar to us. These are the quotes that you see laid over pictures of mountains or sunsets and posted on social media, right? These are the pictures that, these are the quotes that you see stenciled on people's walls or or, uh, over the doorway as you enter their kitchen. It's it's the stuff that the Christian, it's the verses that Christians carry with us to inspire us or to carry us on. Verses like this in verse 1 of chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Or verse 37 through 39, no, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither height, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor either present, nor future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, The reason, I believe, that Paul expressed hope in this passage in such a profound way is that that's what he wanted his audience to experience. As we said, chapter 8 of Romans is the kind of pinnacle of the book of Romans, and Paul is at his most poetic and his most quotable here because he wants to encourage this church. He wants them to be filled with hope. His opening sentence, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is in many ways the thesis statement of chapter 8. But there's one thing that if you pay attention to this chapter, you will find that's a little different. You see, Paul is trying to embed in his audience, not a kind of our version of encouragement, Rather, Paul is trying to embed in the hearts and minds of his audience what he calls hope. And hope, in the Christian sense, is far more than simple encouragement when we think of it. Hope is not cliché. Hope is not a slogan that we tell ourselves in order to make ourselves feel better. Hope is not just the power of positive thinking, right? Hope is not, I'm going to manifest my preferred future, and so I'm going to be as positive as I can possibly be, and one day I'll get that BMW, right? This is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about Christian hope, and Christian hope is not just pie-in-the-sky positivity, is it? Christian hope is something grounded. It's not flimsy. It's not cliché. 
And this is why I so like this idea of Christian hope. And the reason that Christian hope is not flimsy or cliche is that Christian hope is grounded in a historical reality, which is the resurrection. Christian hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Because Christian hope is grounded in the resurrection, it is actually deeply in touch with pain and brokenness. Because Christian hope is grounded in the resurrection, it is deeply in touch with the brokenness of our world. And this is what I believe makes hope so powerful. You know, there are critics of Christianity in this world, some of them just kind of basic critics, some of them more philosophical. People like Nietzsche, if any of you are familiar with Nietzsche, who said that Christianity was kind of just the opiate of the masses. It was just a set of beliefs that, that, were, that were given to Christians in order to kind of just confuse them, to give them some cliche things to believe, and then they would just be placated or pacified in some sense. Just give them a bit of religion as a means to distract them from the pain and difficulty of their lives, and then everybody will just kind of go about their business, as though Christianity is just avoidance, right? But this is not the Christianity that Paul understands in this passage at all. It's not avoidance. It's not an opiate. It's not a distraction. It is something far different than that. It is a belief that confronts the most uh, dire situations of the human life. It is, it is a faith that finds itself rooted deeply in the brokenness of our world. Here's what he says in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You see, this passage is for us, is for all of us who feel deeply the pain and difficulty of life. It is not hope that goes around and blind, that, that is blinded to the difficulty. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't gloss over the pain of our world. It is hope that looks trouble dead in the eye and knows that even in that place there is a promise of new life springing up, even when everything feels broken. You see, the weight of the world is heavy, and it is so heavy at times that you can't even put words to it. Have you ever, any of you ever been in a place where you experienced the brokenness of the world in such a way that there were just not words? Nothing was coming. And Paul tells us that in that place, the Spirit is, is within us and with us in the midst of that, groaning and praying for us when we can't even pray for ourselves. You see, one of the most Christian things you can do is to find yourself in the midst of the broken world, groaning along with the Spirit that resides within you, but yet in that place, still clinging to hope, a, a robust and certain hope. 
This is the way N.T. Wright sums up this passage where he says this. We are, he says, longing for the time when we ourselves will be fully and finally redeemed. When that is, we, when, when that is, we will receive our promised resurrection bodies. We groan and we sigh if we know, if we know what we are about as we experience the tension between the glorious promise and the present reality. This tension is encapsulated in the fact that the Spirit is already at work within us, but has not yet completed the task of our full renewal. You see, what Wright is summing up there is, uh, is Paul's meaning in the book of Romans. That though we have hope in faith of a resurrection that is coming towards us in the at the return of Jesus, though that is our full promise and hope. Paul says that our present sufferings are nothing in comparison to this hope of resurrection that is coming towards us in Jesus. And yet, and yet, to be present in the midst of brokenness with other people, groaning and longing for uh, renewal in hope, is the very place that Christians are called to be. You see, the church is called to be at the point where pain meets hope. We are not to use faith as a means to distance ourselves from pain, but rather we are to be at the point where pain and hope meet. You see, some of the most powerful, potent works of God in all of the world have occurred when Christians meet pain with hope where we meet the difficulty of situations with a kind of through-going, unexplainable joy and hope. Not denying the reality of that pain, not turning our minds and hearts away from it, but rather meeting it in a place. You see, there's no other system of belief that I'm aware that allows us to look full stop into the eyes of life's difficulty with hope. I'm just... I'm, I'm... I'm out of options other than Christianity on that one. And you see, this is, it's, it's hard to talk about almost because when we experience it, it can sometimes be hard. But I can tell you, and I'm sure you can tell me of times in your life when you've experienced a kind of brokenness or you felt as though you were at your wit's end and yet the spirit within you kind of grumbles a word of hope. Because you know that in that place, there is no other explanation and there is no other way forward except a belief that something uh, surpassingly good is still on its way. You see, the church is called to be a people that, are, that live their lives at the point of pain and hope, which is why the church throughout the history of the last 2,000 years has been this entity that's been able to live in the midst of the world's pain and yet be a kind of balm or a salve to the world. You see, this is why when, uh, when natural disasters come or when plague sweeps over the European continent or, or when a tsunami hits some island somewhere, it always seems to be that it is Jesus' people who have the internal resources to meet that pain with hope, right? Because we have this fundamental belief in that place, 
that Christ is working even in the midst of pain. That the, that the Spirit is groaning and working even in the midst of those difficulties. You know, Paul talks about this hope, this mingling of hope and pain with a certain analogy. And the analogy he uses is of birth pains. Now, this might be shocking to you, but I've never given birth. Not once in my life have I given birth to a baby. And so I'm not an expert in this area. But the analogy that Paul uses is of a pregnant woman who is experiencing the pain of birth and yet knows that there is a kind of hopeful event that's coming on the other side of that pain. And the, and the pain in the midst of that birth gives that woman what? Courage, strength, resolve in the midst of that difficult situation to know that something good is coming. Does this make sense? This is the analogy that Paul uses. And so the mother endures the pain that she experiences in childbirth because of the hope set before her of this, of this little life that's going to come into the world. And Paul tells the Roman church, that's who you are. You're like this mother who's enduring pain in the now because you have the first fruits, he says a, a little later, of the spirit within you. That, that there is a hope that is on its way. There's a joy that is coming towards you that cannot be denied. And even though you don't totally see it right now, even though that in, in your immediate circumstances things might feel a little dark, this hope is on its way. And, you're, and, and though you experience the brokenness of the world, the brokenness you now experience is nothing in comparison to the glory that is going to be revealed in you. Now, this is what Paul is talking about when he says even the very earth itself longs for the revelation of the sons of God. What he's talking about is this idea that the world itself is broken and that the world itself longs for this day of consummation when Jesus returns and when all things are put right under his rule and authority. And the, and the church is called to be this, this people who rules and reigns with Jesus. And thus we share his glory, his, his, his leadership of all of creation. And it, and it brings us to this place of understanding that there is hope even in the dark places. There is light just on the other side of the hill. And we know that the church is called to be this in our current situation in this world. Not just because Paul says there's a promise and you're going to get a promise, but we know the church is to be this way, because, but because specifically the cross is the perfect picture of what it looks like for God to be at the point of pain and hope as well. You see, you see on the cross, Jesus gives us a perfect example of what self-sacrificial love looks like in the midst of a broken world. But yet we know what? For the, it was for the joy set before Christ that he offered his life as a sacrifice for many. You see, the cross is this perfect example of what it means to be a Jesus people in the midst of a broken world. Paul says it this way at the end of Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
who will not also, along with us, graciously give us all things, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We who are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so today, band, if you could come up. And so today, as we stand at the crux of our lives, at this point between the pain of the world and the difficulty of life, and the hope of a God whose love cannot let us go, will not let us go. We come to the table of communion. And in some sense, the, the table of communion is the symbol, the sign of this life lived in this tension between uh, in our current broken world, between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. We're told in, uh, in the scriptures that we proclaim in communion the death of Jesus until he comes. It is this hopeful practice, isn't it? It is this hopeful promise even that as we come to the table of the Lord, we identify with a God who didn't want to kind of shut himself off from the brokenness of our, of our world, but wanted to step right into the midst of it. And on the cross, we see the picture of a God who loves us enough to be with us, not to just wallow in our brokenness, but to be in it with us and point to a hope just over the hill. And so this morning, as we come to the table of communion, my prayer for you, and I, and I don't know what this applies, where this applies to you. Maybe you're in this place and you are despairing a little bit. Things are difficult and you need an infusion of hope. Maybe you're in this place and you need a little courage maybe to stand with somebody else in the midst of their pain, right? To be the church, to be a representative of Jesus, to meet someone in their pain. The Holy Spirit within us gives us the strength to do that, right? To be Jesus' people in the midst of other people's pain as a service to the world. But whatever, you, wherever you are and whatever you're struggling with this morning, whatever whatever's going on in your heart and mind, just know know that it is a unavoidable reality that Jesus is going to return, that the brokenness of our world will be made right, that there will be a redemption of our bodies, thank God, and the partiality we feel now will come
come into full wholeness. And there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Paul, when he was instructing the Corinthian church about this practice of communion, says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. When? Until he comes. Until he comes. And so today, we take these elements in our hands as a symbol of hope, of hope, of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf and the grace that's always streaming towards us through the person of Jesus, but in, in hope, knowing full well that there's a joy coming our way. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table and receive together. Father, we love you. And we pray this morning, God, as we bring to the table the fullness of our lives, our hopes, our fears, our concerns, our difficulties, our mental anguish, our broken bodies, God, as we bring all of it to the table this morning, would you suffuse our lives with hope and with grace? Would you help us to be, this morning, a Jesus people? And would we see the death resurrection of Jesus as the center, central reality of our lives. And we, we live out of that reality in all hope this morning. In all hope. And we pray it in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Just a word at Grace Community, we practice an open communion, which means you don't need to be a member of our church in order to receive with us. All we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. Okay? Okay, the table is open. You may come receive.
Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you for the privilege of, of worshiping you and coming before you. We thank you for the privilege of gathering. And more than all of that, we thank you for Jesus, who laid his life down on our behalf and made it possible for us, through faith, to step into the life of God. And so today, God, as we go, would you help us to carry that life and that hope with us? Would you make us a people of hope in the midst of the world? And if we come across anyone this week who doesn't have that hope, who either doesn't know Jesus or is in the midst of a broken situation, God, would you help us to be and share hope with them that we might extend your kingdom in that name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, thanks for being with us today. Uh, one quick instruction before we go. If you're helping with this with Harvest Fest today, we will have lunch up in the fellowship hall. Ashley will meet us up there in a little bit and give us some instructions. So if you are serving today, uh, just hang around for a little bit. You can mill around, have a conversation, and we will uh, have a little bit of lunch together, and then we'll, we'll uh, pass out instructions. All right? All right, would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.